0: Okay, we're going to move right along here into our message. This is part two of a little short series we began last week called Real ID, What the Church Is and Why. And we are taking a look at what a church is supposed to look like and be like and, and what is our part within that as members of a local congregation. You should find in your bulletin a copy Of our new vision statement, and when we get to the application part of what I'm going to talk about this morning, you can just kind of follow along, and hopefully it'll make sense for you as to why we're putting that into place, and eventually we'll have that posted out front, so you can see that every time you come in. And um, I don't really have time to review everything that we talked about last week. Uh, We are going through Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47, but if you're interested in uh, what we won't be covering this morning, you can always go back and listen to it, but I'm just going to read here, take us up to where we'll begin in verse 46, starting at verse 42, and they, the New Testament church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Which brings us to verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament church at this early stage was still very closely associated with temple worship. In time, the leaders of the New Testament church and and the members of it would begin to realize that there were theological differences between Judaism and Christianity, and those differences would become apparent with, with each passing day, and that would serve to kind of begin to splinter off these two faiths, and more importantly, persecution would begin to do that. The Jews were not going to tolerate what they considered this sect that declared Jesus as the Messiah and therefore them as criminals for executing Him. And so persecution made it separate. But for now, the early church would meet in the Jerusalem temple. You see that, uh, Acts 24, verse 53. They would get together during... Uh, the temple teaching time. And they would gather in a place that is known today as Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico. You can read about that in Acts 3 and Acts 5. We know that it was located on the eastern side of the temple near what's called the Court of Women. And essentially what it was was a patio area. It was, it was a porch, and it was really sort of far removed for the, from the inner workings of the temple. As you would walk into the temple on the eastern side, you would come, essentially, to this outer rim area, and there was a patio there, and that's where the apostles would gather those who were now part of the New Testament church, and we know now that it was a pretty sizable number. Throughout the city, there were the original disciples perhaps about a little more than 500 in number, and then there were the 3,000 that got added on Pentecost as a result of Peter's Spirit-empowered message. Now I don't think all 3,000 were attending temple services, but there was clearly a large enough crowd there that they needed an area, a patio area, to meet. We know that this uh, patio was covered, it was about 25 feet wide and it was supported by 40-foot-tall columns, and it was long, sort of rectangular. And that's where the Christians would meet. The apostles would instruct them. They were also doing some fantastic miracles in this area. But it was troubled. The apostles, the early followers of Christ, the New Testament church, were being monitored They were being watched by the religious leaders who controlled the temple, by the temple police force, much like a college. They had their own cops there. People were observing what they were teaching. They were reporting back to the leadership. It was tense, and yet... We see that there was a group that would meet there on a regular basis. These were people who were brave enough to go against what the Jewish religious leaders had already said. They had already issued sort of warnings. I mean, I guess you probably didn't need any more warning than the fact that they crucified their leader. And yet these people were still meeting in this outside area together. Day by day, they would go to the temple, probably just breaking it up day by day so that they could get this large group all covered. So every day, the apostles would go to the temple. Every day, they would teach. And it says they were also breaking bread in their homes. Now, this is interesting. The practice of Christianity wasn't just limited to the temple. In fact, it was spread out Throughout the city of Jerusalem, in many, many living rooms and dining rooms, there were little smaller subgroups of the Christian church that were meeting, and they were breaking bread in their homes. I mentioned this to you guys last week. They ate together a lot. Food was a big part of the New Testament church. But I think there was more involved than just eating together and sort of hanging out and getting to know each other. I think these these home groups were purposeful. And in the days ahead, they were going to become vital, especially after their access to the temple was cut off. I think that they were meeting in homes because it was easier there to teach what God's Word said. I mean, think about it. Every word that's coming out of the apostle's mouth is being written down by somebody when they're at the temple. I've heard stories about what it was like for Christian pastors in the late 1930s in uh, Europe, especially in Germany, where pastors would stand before their congregation and there would be agents of the Gestapo sitting in the congregation, writing things down. Sometimes the the state police would come to pastors and force them to submit their messages to them before they could be preached. You had something very similar to that going on here in Jerusalem. The temple priests, the temple police, informants that were spread into the crowds were listening to what was being taught and reporting it. They were watching what was being done and reporting it. I mean, we know in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are going to encounter a lame beggar at a a gate that was just outside where they were meeting, and they're going to heal him, and they get arrested for it. They get dragged before a religious tribunal. They get threatened and told that they had better shut it down and shut it down quick or there were going to be grave consequences. So, teaching at the temple was a little dicey. Now, they did it anyway, but it wasn't easy. What they found was it was much easier, much more comfortable. I don't know that the apostles were super bothered by it because they knew they were doing what God said, but maybe for the followers of the first century church, probably a little easier to sit in someone's living room where you can ask honest questions where you can learn and not be distracted by, Is somebody watching me? Is somebody reporting me? It also developed close friendships with people because there's nothing like meeting in somebody's home to get, to get to know folk. And it also created mentoring opportunities where maybe the apostles or the people that were teaching in these little house churches would begin to see somebody who had great potential and great curiosity and wanted to grow and could say to them, hey. How about you and I spend a little more time one-on-one, where I can really show you what it means to follow Christ? We're also told that, and and like I said before, as soon as the temple axis was cut off, house – I'll get that – house churches became where the church met. It wasn't like today where where we build structures where we can all come together on Sunday Um, the New Testament church was much more grassroots. They met in homes in just about every city. Now, there were times when they would get together wherever they could, assembly halls and other places, but for the most part, the real work of the church was done during the week in people's homes, which made it very strong and very hard to root out. You remember when it says that Paul, later on, Saul of Tarsus at the time, when he's trying to root out the Christian church from Jerusalem before he takes it on the road, it says he was going house to house? That's why. While they were in their homes, it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And now what we're seeing is not so much the structure of how the church worked, but more the heart of the church, what the New Testament church was like. Imagine yourself, you're in Jerusalem, you've, you've committed yourself to Jesus as the Messiah, you believe He really is who the Old Testament predicted the Son of David would be, and you've seen inexplicable things, and you've joined this new group, and now you've been invited to somebody's home, and you've gone in, and you're listening, and you're a little maybe overwhelmed, but you're excited. And now what you're getting is an insight as to what that would have looked like. And it says they would eat together with glad and generous hearts. There's two things that we're told about what the New Testament church was like. One, well, it was glad, and the ESV translates this word, the second word in Greek, as generous. Um, I don't necessarily think that's the, the best term to describe what was going on, and I'll explain why. First of all, in Greek, the word glad is agaliasis. Agaliasis literally means to jump up for joy. If you want to see what this looks like, watch the football games that will be on after church, okay? (laughs) Watch the football games and see what happens when one team scores a touchdown, particularly the home team. The crowd will spontaneously come to their feet and celebrate. Saw that last night in Jacksonville. That's what that word means. These people were literally jumping for joy. Why? Think about what the world was like. They're in Jerusalem, which means they're in a place that is, perhaps at the time, the most antagonistic city To their faith, other than perhaps maybe Rome, and even Rome isn't as antagonistic here as it would be later on, they're in a place where they are surrounded by people who don't like them and are trying to stop them, and yet they were jumping for joy. I'm sure many of them were facing hardship already. I'm sure many of them were being pressured by family members who were saying to them, what is wrong with you? You are abandoning the law of Moses for a heretic, for a man who was rightly executed? What's wrong with you? I'm sure some of them were suffering financially. Maybe some of them found themselves unemployed. We know that there was a lot of financial need. That's why they were selling everything they had to try to support the people who didn't have anything. I think the financial need was being driven by persecution, was being driven by hardship. And yet, under those circumstances, the people who were meeting in these homes were jumping up for joy. Why? Well, because God was at work among them. And that's always the result of that, no matter what's going on around you. In fact, most of the time, when hardship is going on around you, it makes it so much clearer and easier to see what God is doing. They were joyful. You know, I, I remember the first Sunday that I went back to church after a long vacation from it from the time I was little. Like many of you, uh, I was drugged to church by my parent. My dad did not go to church. He was not a believer, did not become a believer until actually later once I was in the ministry. But my mom was raised in a, in a church and, and just felt like all of her kids needed to go. It had something to do with a pledge she'd made to God years ago, and so she drugged us all to church. And then I finally got old enough where I didn't have to go anymore, and I did not until I was finally up into my 20s, and my life was a mess. So my mom dragged me to church, and I remember going in there filled with contempt, um, frustration. It didn't help that I was crazy hungover and did not want to be there. And I couldn't. I, I wanted to sit all the way in the back of the church. I mean, I, I wanted to push up against the wall, and I wanted to be by the door, and I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible when it was over. And I sat there, and I remember being surprised by many things. One of the things I was surprised by was the interaction of the people. See, because the church I had grown up going to when I was a kid, you weren't allowed to speak in there. I always felt like that was what the hymn books in the, in the pews were for. They were whack kids on the head that spoke. It was sure for what those little funeral home fans were for because the old ladies, you know, if you spoke or created a distraction while you're there. It wasn't like that. The place was buzzing. People were talking. They were excited. You could tell there was something going on there and they were glad to be there and they were glad you were there, which just made me angrier because I wasn't glad I was here. Why are you glad I'm here? But I sat there and as I began to watch things start up, I began to realize that these people had something I didn't have. Their relationship with one another was joyful and I couldn't figure it out. The next thing we see is that it says they were generous. In in Greek, the word is actually a fellow taste. Aphelates means something very interesting. It means, literally, no rocks. That's what it means, no rocks. Aphelates was used to describe the way a farmer prepares a field that he wants to plow. Keep in mind, this is Jerusalem, which means it's in the Judean hills. And I don't know if you've ever been in that part of the country, but it's very rocky, Kind of like Texas a little bit. You guys got your fair share of rocks around here. And before you could plant a field, you had to go out and clear it. Not just from the big boulders that are out there, but for all the little smaller ones that were just beneath the surface. You had to pull them out of there before you could plant. Remember Jesus talked about some of the seed that fell among rocky soil? When they got done with a field that it was sufficiently ready to plant. It was referred to as a There's no more rocks. There's no more stones. It is clear. It is unobstructed. What's being spoken of in this context as a Catch this. Their hearts. Their hearts didn't have any rocks in them. What does that mean? It means that there was nothing obstructing what God was trying to do among them. There wasn't pride, anger, resentment, jealousy, pettiness, sin. Their hearts had been cleared of those things by the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore all that was left was joy. And I think maybe a better word would be Unobstruction maybe sincerity, clarity, singularity of purpose and focus. There was nothing standing in the way of them being completely united. It was like fertile soil that was ready to receive the seed and produce a crop. Coming back to my first Sunday back in church... I began to realize as the service started that it wasn't an act. You know, when you're a kid and you see people in church sometimes, it's easy to spot the ones that are acting. This wasn't that. And the more I sat there and watched it, the more curious I became as to why. Why were they glad to be in a place that I hadn't wanted to be in even when I was a kid? Why did they seem to be genuinely happy to see one another and interacting with one another like they were friends, or maybe better, family? Why were there no typical obstructions that get in the way from people having this kind of relationship? What was going on here? I really didn't understand it for quite some time, but what I did come away with on the first Sunday was this. Whatever it is, however you explain it, I'm wondering if it might not be something I need. Hang on to that. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It says they were praising God. Again, why? I think in response to everything that was going on. Okay, first of all, the apostles are doing miracles. Don't see that every day. They were teaching them truth that was revolutionizing their lives. They had found a community of faith that was tight-knit, better than family, and It was so welcome because they were in a difficult situation. They couldn't have made it without this community. That was how they held on amidst all the struggle that was going on outside of them. It became like their lifeblood. They didn't have to be dragged to church, they wanted to be there. Whether it was the temple or meeting in people's homes, they were anticipating it. They wanted it. It says they did it all the time. Isn't that strange? That they were that excited about it, and as a result of it, just praise came out. Back to my analogy that I'm sure I have already exhausted beyond your patience. That first Sunday when I sat there, when the service actually began, something happened. They began to sing. Now, they had announced they were gonna begin to sing, and a guy had come and stood behind the altar, and I could recognize him from my youth as oh, yeah, this is the choir director. But there wasn't a choir. It was just him. And I was waiting for the musician, singular, to come out, Sister Edna, to go get on the organ, to start playing the opening chords of Love Lifted Me. But Sister Edna didn't come. Instead, a bunch of people that weren't that much older than me, some quite a bit younger, and I was in my 20s at the time, came and got behind musical instruments that I had only seen at a concert, and began to play music that, while familiar to me in style, was unfamiliar to me in content. They began to sing music about the Lord. But here's the most crazy thing of all. As they began to play and to sing, the congregation responded by literally erupting into song. As I looked around, I was startled to see that everybody in there was actually singing. It actually, when they they sang the first word, I actually jumped back a little bit, because I was expecting the normal grave-like silence of my youth. And I began to ask again, why are they singing They seemed to like it. I hated singing at the time. Why? Because it was from the heart. Ever have something happen in your life that's just so awesome that before you can catch yourself, you're actually singing? I have. I used to work for the post office years ago, which means I was a very lonely guy. And I drove the mail out in the middle of nowhere, out in the country. And there would be times when I'd be having a really good day. Just things were rolling my way. And I would be singing. And one time I pulled up to a box thinking nobody is there at all. And I'm singing. And as I go to put the mail in the box, there's a guy standing there. A big, burly farmer with a gigantic beard. who just goes, you it, right, son? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you know. I was singing because I had joy in my heart. That was what was going on here. And then what happened? It says they had... Favor with all the people. What? What do you mean they had favor with all the people? Well, by all the people, it means all the people who didn't already have an axe to grind with them, like the religious leadership of the temple, the people whose livelihood was being threatened, whose morality and conscience were being threatened by their own duplicity in putting the Messiah to death. But other than them, the general populace of Jerusalem was beginning to quietly, not publicly, Not out and open where anybody could hear it, but quietly was saying, you know what, I kind of respect these people. I I, I don't know why, but there's something attractive. They seem to have found something that we don't have in all of our glorious temple and all of our wondrous history and all of our scrolls and all of our religious leaders. They seem to have joy. There aren't any obstructions in their relationships. They seem to truly love God. They seem to have something we don't have, but maybe we need. And so because of it, the populace of Jerusalem began to slowly, quietly, subtly think more favorably of them. And that made the religious leaders even angrier. It's the reason why they crucified Jesus because crowds were beginning to turn from them toward Jesus. And this, I think, is at the core of why persecution starts in the very next chapter of Acts. Because the people's hearts were beginning to ask questions that they didn't want them asking. And we're told in Scripture that when we live our lives in the fullness of all that God can do, and with the proper response to it, when there aren't any stones in our heart, when there is a little bounce in our step, when we're glad to be around each other because we know the God of heaven and earth, and we see His power being manifested, that is a winsome thing to a skeptical world surrounding us that isn't maybe at first happy that we are who we are or that we're doing what we're doing. They began to open up doors for what it says next. It says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Some of the people that were starting to soften up a little bit toward what they had been told was a cult they had been told was dangerous, what they had been told needed to be dealt with and avoided at all cost, they began to realize, you know something? These people aren't who they say they are. I don't see anything dangerous about them. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to really wonder about what they've discovered. I'm starting to see that they have something I don't have. And because of that, because of the curiosity that was being generated, because of the winsome way that these believers were living their lives, loving each other, caring for those who were marginalized, taking care of each other, even financially, (gasps) yeah, miracles being done that couldn't be explained, truth being taught that was mind-boggling and life-changing. These people were starting to flip Jerusalem on its ear on their way to doing the same thing for the Roman world in the days ahead. And so people began to say, listen, um, shh, but who is this Jesus you guys keep talking about all the time? What did he do? And it says the Lord was adding to their number day By day by day, people were starting to get saved. But what's really interesting to note is that despite the fact that there were miracles that were being done, despite the fact that the apostles were teaching fantastic truth, despite the fact that there was a tight-knit community, the ultimate factor behind their growth had nothing to do with anything they were doing. It had everything to do with what God was doing. Now, he was using them to do it, but they were just the vessels. What really brought the change was the work of God, which tells you that only God can save someone. Only God can change someone. Only God can grow a church. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? If you go to any Christian bookstore or if you go online and you start looking at Christian literature, one of the best-selling things out there is always books on church growth. I've read so many books on how to grow a church. And you want to know what's funny? Is every one of them has one thing in common. They don't know what they're talking about. Now they're trying. Usually, what they'll do is it's always written by somebody whose church has grown, and although not doing it directly, is taking credit for it. Not that we did it; it was it was all God that did it. But if you want to know how to do it, here's how: buy my book, and then I'll tell you how it happened here. And all they're really doing is recounting what God did, and then trying to put it into easy steps that you can follow. That don't work. And I don't think necessarily God wants it to work, because we're trying to take credit for something only He can do. But it doesn't stop us. It just goes to show you that no matter how many flashy speakers you have, and the church loves flashy speakers, we're very caught up in the cult of personality. It doesn't matter how many talented, professional musicians you can hire. We love to do that. It doesn't matter if you have cradle-to-grave programming, high-dollar facilities, social assistance, subsidies, perfectly paved parking lots, designer, coffee in the hall, all things we do. And by the way, I'm not knocking those things. I'm just saying, it's real easy to look at that stuff and to say, that's how the church grows wrong. It's also very freeing to know that if you don't have those things, God can still build His church. And that is so reassuring. God will use ordinary people, regardless of what kind of worldly resources they have, to build the kingdom. You know, the The modern mentality of the church most of the time is very similar to something that the Romans used to do. It was called bread and circuses. Kids, if you don't know what that is, look it up later. But basically, it was a way to keep people who were becoming increasingly disgruntled with the malfeasance and the ineptitude of their government, it was a way to keep them from revolting. They would feed them, and they would entertain them. That's what the Colosseum was all about, and it kept them placated. And I think a lot of times churches think that when we do that and we can draw a crowd because you can always draw a crowd if you entertain and feed them, that that is growth, but it isn't necessarily. That's not to say every big church has no new Christians that they're not growing. Hey, no, listen, God bless them. But I just want to make sure that we know that the way God grows the church is the way God grows the church. And I find that most of the yeoman's work being done for the kingdom of God are being done, is being done by, in small churches by forgotten people who are doing yeoman's work in just faithfully sharing their faith, walking out what God says and seeing God move among them and then their numbers begin to just slowly grow and the people begin to progress in their faith. Some of the best work God does, he does anonymously in forgotten little places like this. Okay? That's very encouraging to me. All right. What does the New Testament church look like? We're going to go back and review a little bit. In your bulletins, there should be a vision statement, and I've tried to follow along with everything that we've learned here. The first thing that marked the New Testament church was that they were seeking the Lord. They were seeking Him. They were deliberately seeking Him. It was purposeful. We're told in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Through the fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. It means that they were deliberately seeking instruction and community and accountability and reliance upon God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to listen to last week. It says in verse 43 that awe came upon every soul. They were seeking God. They were seeking an encounter with Him, a taste of the divine. And God was rewarding them. Isaiah 55, 6 says, "'Seek the Lord while he may be found. "'Call upon him while he is near.'" So the first thing that a church needs to be doing is seeking the Lord. If you're seeking anything else, you're already cooked. Next, they were standing together as Christ followers. We've already seen in verse 44, it says, "'All who believed were together "'and had all things in common.'" That doesn't mean that they agreed on every single topic in life. I taught you about that last week. It means that despite all of their differences their age differences, their cultural differences, their political differences, their you-name-it differences, those things were being set aside in favor of the kingdom. The kingdom of God was being prioritized above every other individual concern, and that drew them together and drew them together and drew them together, and they began to realize they had far more in in common with one another, things that were important than they did that separated them. By the way, that's how you plow the rocks out of your heart. You can't come to God with your own agenda. You have to be ready to embrace His. And the more people that do that, the more unified the place will become. They were marked by love and unity and loyalty and grace. Paul, Paul speaks about this in Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is saying, listen, if anything good is happening in you because of the work of the Spirit of God, then the effect of that ought to be that I shouldn't have to cajole you to fight together instead of apart. So they were standing together as Christ followers. They were seeking the Lord. Third, they were striving for godly engagement. Striving for godly engagement. They were working toward working together. And getting involved in each other's lives. It was more than just being unified. It was involvement. Their lives were intertwined with one another. The more time went on, the more they were connected to each other. Verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We saw last week that the last thing that ever gets baptized is the pocketbook, the wallet. They were putting their finances right out there with their faith practice, which was a demonstration of its reality. Verse 46, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They were connected, and that is so important that we don't just say, well, I'll see you next Sunday. No, throughout the week, they were checking on each other. They were praying for each other. They were inviting each other into their homes. They were walking out their faith in a community that started off skeptical and afraid and antagonistic and was slowly, slowly, slowly being won over by the way they conducted themselves. Paul wrote in Romans 12, starting at verse 9, he said, "'Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil.'" Verse 47 says, they had favor with all the people. That's what opened the door, the way they lived their lives. Who they were provided the opportunity for them to share who had saved them, who he was. Verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number day by day. 2 Corinthians 2.14, I love this verse. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. I love, Paul could turn a phrase like nobody. What Paul is saying is that when we're who we're supposed to be, when we're walking out our faith the way we're supposed to, it's like when somebody walks into a room and they're wearing cologne that is just Heavenly. And everybody's like, wow, who is that? I bought some new cologne one time, and, and I didn't tell my wife about it, and I tried it on, and she was like, ooh, that's nice. Where'd you get that? Said, Bonus! <laughs> that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be wearing the cologne of Christ when we go out into a lost world so that when they see how we live and how we interact with each other and with him, they say, hmm, something smells good. All right, when we're trying to draw a picture of what the church looks like, I, I think one of the best images that I always think about, because this was my experience, I've already told you a little bit about what it was like before God saved me, and then the transforming work afterward, but one of the best pictures that I think of, of how the church works is that it's like a re- renovation center, it's where you take something that's broken and it gets fixed, let me tell you a story. Every day that there, there's, a, there's a place where several large trucks that are full of discarded goods that have been culled from a local landfill, they arrive at this warehouse. It's in the eastern suburbs of Hamburg, Germany. And when it gets there, once all this stuff that's been taken out of the local landfill gets brought to this warehouse, it gets sorted through and categorized by a team of trained employees. But it's not a normal waste processing center. It's the first stage of refinement for something called in German the Stilbrück Kaufhaus. In German, Stilbrück Kaufhaus basically means off-style department store, or maybe more accurately, bohemian department store. It's basically a unique secondhand market that is run by the city's Sanitation department. Instead of simply destroying or disposing of reusable throwaways, the municipal team at Stillbrook checks and, if necessary, repairs each item that comes in before putting them back on sale to the public. It touts itself as a place for those who prefer saving money on pre-owned, I love that word, versus new. According to locals, the Stillbrook facility has become the IKEA of used goods. Some 400,000 objects are processed through two giant cavernous warehouses every year, everything from well-worn teddy bears to refurbished laptops and even kitchen counters. Stillbrook contracts with technicians and craftsmen who ensure that all used furniture is given a thorough beautification and all electronics can be sold with a one-year warranty. It was started as an experiment by the city back in 2001. It began as a nonprofit just to see if the idea would work. It started with one full-time employee. Today, they employ 70 people. They bring in a profit between somewhere around $330,000 to $550,000 U.S. every year. Roman Hottengroth, who's an operation manager, said, all of these things are useful. They really aren't trash. We're trying to stop throwaway culture and wastefulness. There's so much value in what we treat like rubbish. Amen. You know, when we are the church as defined by Scripture, this becomes a place where things that have been discarded and forgotten about and written off come in and get renovated. I'm one of them. Maybe you are too. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us what a church looks like. That isn't the whole picture, Lord. I I know that there are many other aspects to what a church is, and they're revealed in Scripture. And we'll get to those, Lord. But at least this thumbnail helps us to evaluate where we are and where we need to be. My prayer for this congregation is that you would begin to shape us into this image that we just studied, that you would help each of us, beginning with me, Lord, to find our place to figure out how we, like that little piece of a gigantic puzzle, fit in to make a beautiful picture. My prayer is for those here this morning that they would be doing that, Lord. For those who've come here visiting and they're a part of other congregations, I pray you would plug them in there if they aren't already and begin to use them and to shape them to make that church all it should be. But if they don't yet have a home, we welcome them to come here and do that here, Lord. I believe you're doing something amongst these people. You're doing a great renovation, and I'm so thankful for it. We bless your name, and we commend ourselves into your care as we seek you in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.